Welcome and thank you for taking the time to listen to the Word of God released through Randolph Barnwell. Randolph is the founder and senior elder of Gate Ministries Durban Central. Be encouraged to access free additional resources for your edification at randolphbarnwell.com. Great grace, peace and mercy from Christ be multiplied to you as you listen to this teaching. Babylon invaded Judah, they didn't invade all of Israel. They took over Judah specifically, and they did not take everybody captive. They took the best of Judah captive. Why? Where did kings come from? Judah. Judah was the kingly line. So if you take the ruling class, you take the whole nation. And they took the best, the best looking and the best minds. They took them and they taught them the Babylonian language, Babylonian learning for three years. Remember? Changed their names from the Hebrew names that they had to Babylonian names. Wanted to inculcate Babylonian culture into them. But Daniel and the three Hebrew boys stood out. When given meat to eat from the king's table, what did they say? Daniel said, no, we will not contaminate ourselves with meat from the king's table. What he was not saying is that we don't like your diet. He was symbolically saying, I will not permit myself, because meat speaks of ideology. Meat meat speaks of uh, thought patterns or principles. Okay? Jesus said, my meat is to do the will of him that sent me. I chuckled yesterday because Liam is living on his own now. You're going to cook for yourself now. So he took a pic, and we have a family WhatsApp group, and he sent a picture of the stuff he bought yesterday. So he laid it all on the table, and he's showing us what he bought. So I said, but I don't see any meat. Where's the meat? It's all like, I said, don't tell me you're vegan now or, or vegan or vegetarian. What's happening? And no meat. And he politely responded, my meat is to do the will of my father. <laughs> and to finish the work until he has called me. John 4, 34. Um, so when Daniel refuses the kings of Babylon's meat, you're saying, I'm not going to submit myself to your purpose, to your principle, to your ideology. And so um, they had vegetables. Many people embark upon the Daniel diet. Now they just had water and vegetables. And they, after 21 days, he looked better and brighter than the best that ate of the king's, uh, of the king's meat. The Bible says Daniel resolved himself to keep himself pure. Well, the year has started, <laughs> and it's the first week, and people usually take a while to rev up and to get going. Uh, it's good to take a rest. I read a verse in, I think it's Leviticus 27, 2 or 25, 2, where it's talk about resting. The land must rest, and you will take a rest. But the text says, and you will rest and thus honor the Lord. And the Lord spoke to me that rest honors the Lord. Now, I had to get my mind around that because, if you know, I'm a very driven workaholic. And sometimes to not do something honors the Lord. And I know these times of rest, the holidays, are as critical as times of work. Israel journeyed, and wherever the cloud stopped, they stopped journeying. They did not determine the length of the camping. Because as the cloud moved, so Moses would lead them. But the Lord said to me this, the seasons of their journey, or rather the seasons of their camping, were just as important as the seasons of their their journey. And so, uh, you know, when you rest, you rejuvenate, you replenish. That's why sleep is so important. Okay? Dr. Segi said, sleep is your best doctor. Because it's God's methodology by which he has programmed the body to rejuvenate and heal itself from the pressures of the day. Okay? So sleep is indicative of the rest principle. And so I want to encourage you that even when we rest, we honor the Lord because we refresh to pursue the part that is ahead of us. Amen. So tell your neighbor, rest well. You rest with the idea of we will be more focused, more invigorated, more um, revitalized to pursue the will of the Lord with greater gusto than ever before. Amen. What I want to do today is continue with Kingdom Economics. 
I have a whole lot of notes here, and it's taking forever to get through. And this week, even as I studied, um, the Lord gave me some whole lot of fresh new things, which I won't get into now, uh, simply because of time. But we, had, we were discussing in this segment the issue of sowing and reaping, and discussing why is it that some do not enter into harvest. And let me just quickly rehearse the reasons. Why is it that some don't enter into harvest? We said, well, some, the obvious reason is that some simply don't sow. So if you don't sow, you will not reap. Um, we've, we've analyzed kingdom economic principles from God's word in last year. It's very important to do an appraisal or an assessment in your life on what he's taught to you. It's important to ask yourself, am I honoring God financially? Am I or my family, are we honoring God financially? It's an important thing. If you don't master economics, there's very little else in the spirit you will master. It's a litmus test and it's, it gives you eligibility to enter into greater spiritual things. Jesus said, if you are unfaithful with the handling of unrighteous mammon, do you think, do you really think I'm going to commit to your trust the unseen riches of the, of the kingdom? Okay, for me, uh, I could never understood why so often Pastor Thamo would say, people ask him, why is it that revelation comes so easily to him? And he would say things like this, I don't pray more than the most average person, neither do I fast more than the average person. Nothing extra special about me. But he said, if I have to pin one of the reasons down why God freely gives me revelation, he said this because of how I freely give financially. If I'm faithful with finances, he's faithful to dispense to my trust the, the understanding of eternal things. Amen. So, Faithfulness in one domain uh, renders you eligible uh, to receive from another domain. Okay? Then we said, for example, um, you reap little because you sow little. You reap much because you sow much. There's no, um, nothing mysterious about that. It's a basic principle of, of life. He who sows sparingly will reap also sparingly. He who sows generously, the scripture says, will reap also generously. You control directly the quantity and quality of your harvest. If you want your harvest to increase, allow your seed to increase. Very, very simple. We also said some people don't enter into the fullness of harvest is because of discouragement between seed time and harvest time. Those are two separate time periods. So having sowed, do not be discouraged by the seeming absence of a harvest in your time frame. God never forgets seed, we said. Thirdly, we said, I'm just running through this to get to where I need to go to today. There's a lack of faith and assurance in God and the principle of His Word. Having sown, you must still maintain faith that God will honor your seed sowing. Don't, after having sown, enter into doubt and unbelief. Faith must be maintained unswervingly. So maintain your confidence in the Lord. Fourthly, we said, you've sown but you've never reaped because you display no commitment to the corporate house of God. And we did this, we did this study in Haggai, remember, where uh, God said to these people that they say, we've sown much but we reap little. They ask why. God gives them the answer. He says, because my house lies in waste. My house is desolate. Each one of you is concerned about your own private panel houses but what about the corporate purpose attached to my house? So one of the things that definitely hinders harvest is that you're sowing, you're faithful, you're giving. No harvest because you display no commitment to the corporate community of the, the house of God. For example, for you, right now, it will be this corporate church. For us as a church, it will be what God is doing in the, in the city. Okay, And this year, there's going to be more city gatherings than ever before. And we as a house are going to be committed to what God is doing in the city because as a house we want to be blessed and, and support the greater body of, of Christ in the, in the city. Okay, And so in Haggai it says you, 
you, you, you work hard, you reap much, but you put it into your pocket, but your pocket got holes. God says, why? He says, because my house. God is saying, get your attitude to my house right. You see, the principle of sowing and reaping for the Son of God works dependent on your commitment to a whole lot of other things, not just the principle. Okay? So one, one, um, one affects the, the other. And we looked at a whole bunch of scriptures there that I don't want to go into uh, right now. Remember we did the Balaam study, uh, the intention of uh, Balaam, um, commissioned by the Moab king Balak to curse Israel. But he could not. Why? Because they were in tribes. When he saw the tribal configuration of, the, of, of Israel, could not. So commitment to tribal things, commitment to corporality, serves as immunity in your journey, okay? Then, fifthly, we said, if there's any semblance of dishonor towards spiritual leadership, your seed is rendered impotent. Any, any semblance of dishonor to leadership. Now, for example, a first fruit offering is given specifically to honor your spiritual father in Christ. Some people give first fruits without the principle of honor. The very thing is designed to Honor, uh, even when you give tithes or offerings, or even if you give to the poor or you're helping a fellow brother in need, always remember this. The recipient of my seed is the point of honor, whoever it is. If the principle of honor, respect, high regard, and esteem is not attached to the one receiving the gift, the, the, the seed principle loses its efficacy, loses its potency. So the principle of honor must always be resident in your, in your giving. Honor the Lord, Proverbs says, with your wealth. Honor the Lord with it. If you give it without the principle of honor, your, excuse me, your barns will not be full with plenty, neither will your vats burst forth with, with new wine. So honor is an essential thing whenever I, I give. And we went through, again, again a whole bunch of, of, of scriptures that's, and there's much else that I did not get to preach regarding that. I'm just looking at my notes here. But perhaps if the Lord permits, um, we will do um, when, we, when we get there. Now, a reason that I want to talk about today that we started speaking about in our New Year's or rather our Christmas Eve service on the 24th of December. On the 24th of December, we discussed comparisons between the giving of Christ and as a seed to the earth and financial seed sowing, okay? And we looked at a whole lot of things there. But I want to tie some aspects into what I want to present to you today. Whenever God is not glorified by the giving, the giving loses its potential result of a harvest, if God is not honored or if God is not glorified by it. And I started on the 24th of December to explain the concept of glory and why glory is ascribed. Ascribe glory to the Lord, David said. Give glory. Glory is ascribed. I give you glory. We, we sing or we say when we worship God, I give you glory. Remember I say this to you. Glory relates to an estimate held in the mind by an observer regarding someone. You think of someone, especially God in this context, and you hold him in high esteem, or you regard him as full of grandeur, God of weight, and, um, and worthy of your respect, your adoration. You attach glory to him. Worship is born out of a revelation of God's glory. Worship can never ever take place until the worshiper has a revelation of how glorious the God that he is worshiping is. So David would say, I give you glory. Now you can't give God anything. Right? Uh, I magnify you. But he is big. You can't, you can't, by saying I magnify you, make him any bigger than he, than he already is. When David said I magnify you, he's not saying I'm going to make you bigger. He's saying I I consider you magnificent. I enlarge you within the concept of the smallness of my limited thinking. God, that bigness, 
I, re- I harness it and receive it in fullness into my being. I accord it to you because I see it. It's born out of a revelation of what I see of you, and now I, I voice it. You see, you give God what He already is. It's a scribe. I give you glory. But biblically in the New Testament, you can say that, and it's good to have an opinion about it. Not so? It's good to, uh, you, you think God is glorious? Yes. He's a glorious, magnificent God. But how do we give Him glory? Just very, very quickly, and I want to show you this. We give God glory in all we do. Matthew, six, Matthew 5, 16, Let your light so shine before men that they might, in such a way that they might see your good works and give and glorify your Father which is in, which is in heaven. So, you do good works by letting your light shine. Men see that and they glorify your Father. Your good works become an activator of displaying the glory of God. Secondly, your behavior before the unsaved. Watch. Your behavior in the world before your unsaved colleagues. 1 Peter 2.12 Keep your behavior excellent amongst the Gentile. The Gentiles, they refer to unsaved nations. Keep your behavior excellent amongst your unsaved school friends, your unsaved university friends, your unsaved work colleagues. Why? So that in the thing in which they slander you as evildoers, they may be cause of your good deeds as they observe them, glorify God in the day of visitation. Okay? So you behave excellently amongst the unsaved so that even when they try to slander you, uh, ridicule you, they see your what? They see your good deeds, your behavior, and they will start to glorify God. So your good deeds become a point of a catalyst, if you wish, which, by which others, by, you, by which you glorify God more certainly, and then contextually here, by which others will then glorify God. And then even in the use of spiritual gifts, 1 Peter 4.10, quickly. 1 Peter 4.10 says the following. As each one has received a special gift, employ it in serving one another as good stewards of the manifold grace of God. I've yet to teach on this, and I will do it shortly in the new year. That any gift, any gift, any gift, be it the, the, one of the nine gifts of the Holy Ghost, be it one of the five ascension gifts of Christ, be it one of the seven motivational gifts of the Father, recorded in Romans 12, any gift, whatever you're gifted at, is an expression of the grace of God, right? You are steward of the grace of God that prompts the expression of the gift. Next verse says this, though. Whoever speaks gives some examples of gifts. Whoever speaks is to do as one who is speaking the utterance of God. Whoever serves is to do as one who is serving by the strength that God supplies. So that in all things who may be glorified. So that in all things God might be glorified through Jesus Christ. Now, if you, if you exercise your gift and you are glorified, you've missed the purpose for the execution of your gift. The expression of your gift must bring honor and glory to to God. So in all you do, in your good deeds, in the workplace, when you, when you exercise your gift to benefit another, people must then give God, must give God glory. And John 15 verse 8 is the most succinct capturing of this concept. We bear fruit of any kind and that must glorify God. How is the Father glorified? My Father is Glorified how? That you bear fruit and that your fruit should remain. That your, fru- your fruit should remain. Fruit here is a reference to character. Like you get the nine fruit of the Holy Ghost. right? Love, kindness, patience, perseverance, uh, long suffering. You know that suffering that's long. <laughs> long suffering, patience, etc., all those are character issues. So watch. If I develop character that is Christ-like, by that I glorify God. 
I can sing in a worship team and say, I glorify you. There's a place for that. But this text saying there's another way in which he's glorified. In other words, there's another way by which you show you have a revelation of how magnificent. There's another way by which you show that you esteem him highly. There's another way that you regard his weight, his glory, is how you behave, is exhibiting of your, your fruit. So every time um, uh, uh, someone riles me, instead of revenge, if I administer forgiveness, guess what I'm doing? I'm showing fruit. And guess what I'm doing? I'm glorifying God. Watch. Glory, another word uh, that's easy to remember what glory means, is reputation. God's glory is God's reputation. Do you know what he's hung his whole reputation on? You. He's saying, I will remain in invisibility, in the unseen. You are in a known seen world. You are my son. What did John say? In the beginning was the Word, the Word became flesh, was God. And the Word was God, the Word was with God, verse 14. And the Word became flesh and? And what did we beheld? Look at verse 14, John 1, 14. We beheld His? So when glory comes to the earth, what does it come in? What's the container? Son, who is the Word. Glory doesn't just come in, it comes packaged in. Sonship. Sonship is the... Pin code, it's the, des it's the icon on the desktop of the planet. Think of the planet as one screen. The, the, if you want to double-click what glory is, you have to double-click sonship. If there's a son, and the definition of son is one that represents his father by being full of the word, the word becomes flesh. And let me just say, the word must become flesh in your flesh. word must become flesh in? Your flesh. And when the word becomes flesh in your flesh, what will men see? Glory. What is glory? Right? God has remained the Father invisible. He sends a son to show his invisibility. So he hangs his whole reputation on the nature and the acts and the attitudes and the behavior and, and the working of that son. People see the son, they get a representation of the Father, Hebrews 1, 3, quickly. I know we're going off here, but just quickly. I'm trying to get to where I need to go, but listen carefully. Who's he here? Jesus, the Son. He is the radiance of what? Of his? The radiance is the reflection. It's the, the effusence. It's a lovely word. It's, and he's there, what? Exact representation. If you think glory, you say, I am the glory of God. What you're saying is, I represent exactly. It's not just... Uh, if you look at me, you'll get a slight indication of God. No. If you look at me, you will, you will see God exactly as He is. So in, before the Gentiles, in the workplace, before your family, when they see you, who should they see? Come on, who should they see? They should see God. You are the reputation. Again, another word for glory. Reputation. You are the reputation of God. Right? So, tell your neighbor, represent well. Represent well. Right? So, um, if people want to study God, they need to study you. You, the son, like he, the son, was, should be an exact representation of all that. All that he is. Isaiah 6. Um, remember the vision that Isaiah saw? Isaiah 6, verse 1. Verse 2, he saw the Lord high and lift. He saw seraphim, angelic beings flying all, the, all over the place. And what did these angels say in verse 3? One called to another saying what? Holy, holy, holy is the Lord. What is full with His glory? So where are these angels? Where are they? Flying. In the immediate presence of God. Isaiah said, I saw the Lord on a throne high and, and there's six winged angelic beings called seraphim with two wings they cover their face with two wings they cover their feet and with two wings they they're flying around the throne picture the scene eh, in heaven they're flying around the throne and they're not saying holy holy to the lord we got this wrong they're not saying it to the lord who are they saying it to to one uh get i know it's fine to say holy holy to the lord we sing that because you'll find that in the book of revelation but in isaiah there's a part of worship that is lateral, 
where I say to Ryan, concerning him who sits on the throne, he is holy. You know, if I were to make a movie about this, bright lights, a throne, he can't see God, so a obscure figure there, someone but magnificent, his train falls the temple, and six-winged angels flying. Picture full of like birds of angels flying. And as each one passes the other one, hey, holy, holy is the Lord. The whole earth's full of his glory. Another one, hey, holy, holy is the Lord. The whole earth's full of it. They were not saying this to the Lord. They were saying this to one earth. Reminding each other that God who is Father, Son, and Holy Ghost, three in one, in all his three parts, he is a holy God, right? He's a holy God, right? But what is full? They are right there, but they can't see glory because they're covering there. They are saying for us to study God, we have to study the earth. His reputation, we are right close to Him, but we will never know Him until we look to the earth. And who's on the earth? You are here. You are the reputation and the representation of your Father. Please, I'm getting to a point. Everything about you, my point is this. Everything about me, when people look at it, must see God. And they too then must stand in magnificence and awe of God and say, wow, glory be to God. Truly his nature, his power, his presence has been on display in the, in the midst of us. Okay? Has been on display in the midst of us. One last text. John, um, you, we also glorify God by starting and doing something in reference to his will. John 17, verse 1. Jesus said, lifting up his eyes, he's praying in the garden, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your son that your son might glorify you. And then in verse 4 he said, I have glorified you on, where? I've glorified you on earth, having done what? Having accomplished the work which you have given me to do. So how did Jesus glorify his Father? What did he say? How did I accomplish glorifying you? I started something and I finished something. I have finished. Is he on the cross yet? Is he on the cross yet? No, he's in the garden praying. This is John 17, by the way. On the cross, he said, it is finished, and he healed it up the ghost. King James, just put King James, same verse. King James says, he says, I've glorified you on earth, and I have what? But I want to remind the Lord, but you're not dead yet. Only on the cross, you will say, it is finished. And the, like the, the, the verse that um, uh, Fiona quoted, he healed it up the spirit. The deed was done when he died. But before he died, a few weeks before, he's praying, and he already makes the statement, I have, although he did not actually finish, watch, he lived in the power of finishing capacity before he gets there. For him, the deed is done. I always believe Calvary's victory was won in Gethsemane. When he said, not my will, but if it's possible, take this cup, but not my will, but thy will be done. I want to say this again. The intense trial of Calvary, all the uh, court cases in Pilate's courts, four of them I think there was, all of the trauma, the testing, all of that was a done deal. It was secured in Gethsemane. Like Daniel resolved not to defile himself with the king's meat. The Bible says he resolved, the text says, not to define, defile himself. So when king's meat was, was presented to him, it was presented to a man with a resolve. If the resolve wasn't there before the meat was presented, maybe Daniel would have fallen. That's why before you are tempted, resolve. Make up your mind about things. I'm not going to have premarital sex, for example. Make up your mind. Resolve something. I will not. So when the temptation comes to you, Guess what? The temptation is coming not to a vacuum. It's coming to a standard already determined. Right? So Daniel already resolved. 
Similarly here, I think, in Gethsemane, he is saying, I have finished. So now let's just, and you know when, when he finished this prayer, who came into the garden with Roman soldiers? Judas. The process started, but before the process started, the resolve ensured that he would walk through the pain of the process and accomplish the deed. Okay? So you got to, you know, I'm resolving this year. Come on, this year is going to be a good year. Amen? You've got to make a resolution, make a decision in the heart saying, come hell or high water, I will be firmly committed to principles of God's word that we've been taught. Firmly. So that while I engage processes that challenge that position, I will not give up because the decision has been made. Come on, tell someone the decision has been made. It's very important. An unresolved man is an easily defeatable man. He who has got no resolve, he who is indecisive, he who has uh, got no goals, no, no ambition, nothing secured, nothing pinned, nothing pegged, can easily be dislodged. Okay? So I resolve to be decisive. And so I want to encourage you this year. It's good to, like I encouraged you in one of the posts, how do I glorify God? The work. Everyone say the work. The work attendant with your life and with the corporate life of the church. Resolve. We're going to finish this thing. We're going to bring it to resolve. We're going to we're going to walk through its process. We're going to finish it. Amen? Uh, tell someone I'm a finisher. Amen? We wrote a song. It will be on our new CD. I'm confident God will do what He said. But the author, uh, the, the, the bridge part goes, author and the finisher of faith. You know God's the finisher? He's the author and the finisher of faith. God is a finisher. He always finishes what He starts always finishes what he starts. Now, how do we tie all of this in? So, I want to encourage you. Are you going to finish? Yeah? Don't, don't, don't take long. Take the next uh, short step. Okay? Life is made up of moments. Destiny is made up of periods called 24-hour days. Take each day and make each day count. Walk surely, walk sure-footedly, but walk towards the accomplishment of a specific goal in Christ. Amen. And resolve it. Amen. Now, I want to read 2 Corinthians 9 and relate all of this to finance. My point in laying all this introduction out to you is this. Everything about me, that Jesus said, I finished the work, must glorify God. How I used my spiritual gifts, must glorify God. My behavior in, the, in front of the Gentiles must glorify God. Me exhibiting the nature of God, the fruit of the Spirit, must glorify God. Each time I put the nature of God on display for men to see, and I give men an idea of God. Watch, this is a powerful thought. My whole life is a window to men into the nature of God. God does not make himself known outside of me. So I put, I put displays on before men of how good God is, of how kind God is. To know God, they must study me. You become, that's why the knowledge of the glory of the Lord will fill the earth like waters cover the sea. The text does not say the glory of the Lord. It says the knowledge of the, that glory. In other words, the glory is going to cover the earth by someone giving knowledge to it. A knowing, in other words, is going to come. And how is that possible? Only by sons of God all over the world showcasing the nature of God. That is how glory is put on display. So watch, with that in mind, with all of that in mind, that's how you must read this. This chapter speaks about finances. From verse 6, watch, verse 6. From verse 6 to verse 15. Now I say this. He who sows... Sparingly will also reap sparingly, and he who sows bountifully will reap also bountifully. Each one must do as he purposed in his heart, not grudgingly nor under compulsion, 
for God loves a cheerful giver. God is able to make all grace abound to you so that you, always having all sufficiency in everything, you may have an abundance for every good work or every good deed. As it is written, he scattered abroad and he gave to the poor his righteousness endures forever. This is the most powerful statement. His righteousness endures forever. I want to unpack that next week. You can't miss next week. Verse 10. He will supply seed to the sower and bread for food, will supply and multiply your seed for sowing and increase the harvest of your righteousness. You will be enriched in everything for all liberality which through us is producing thanksgiving to God. For this ministry of this service is not only fully supplying the needs of the saints, but also overflowing through many thanksgivings to God. Notice, many are giving thanks to God by what you give. Because of the proof of this ministry, they will do what? They will? Come on, they will do what? They will? Come on, say, they will glorify God. They will glorify God for your obedience. So here's the link. Many things glorify God in our lives, but this text makes it very plain. Generous givers, not sparing, but those bountiful. When they give, they cause many others to produce thanksgiving to God, and they put on display the nature of God for others to, for others to see. Right? Many will glorify God for your obedience and confession of, of the gospel. So, in this text, there's a direct relationship between your giving and how that giving glorifies God. Please remember this, and I'll explain it now in more detail. Every time you do anything, not just financial giving, you're representing God and you're putting His nature on on display. So you must be very careful that you don't misrepresent him. It is possible then to do a righteous deed or a right deed that you think will glorify God, but you're doing it with the wrong internal heart disposition or the wrong attitude. And this cancels the representation. So uh, I think like this. Every time I give, whether it's a first fruit to my Father in Christ, whether it's uh, help to a beggar that comes to me almost daily now, whether it's to help a friend in need, right, or offerings to a kingdom project, a building project, let's say, of any kind, I must think like this. Every time I do that, I am glorifying God. You've got to think glorification. Tell you never think glorification. So... I'm putting on the brilliance of God on display. As a son of God, I'm representing Him fully. And I've discussed this in great length when we did, we should give as your Father gives. Give as the Father gives. Because when you give, you're representing Him directly. Now, I want to dovetail this with the next point. People do not reap when they sow, because after having sown, their sowing was not fully representative of the Lord, and what was not honoring of God. Was not honoring of God. Your seed sowing must be God honoring. Your seed sowing must be God glorifying. If it's not, the innate potential seed capacity for harvest is cancelled almost immediately. Now, you've got to look at this. Um, and let's look at the text. Verse 7 of the same chapter. Look at the text. Let's look at verse 6 and 7. Because look at the very verse in which, excuse me, the principle of sowing and reaping is contained. The verse is this verse, not so? He who sows sparingly will reap sparingly, and he who sows bountifully will, will reap bountifully. And the very next verse is, each one must do as he has purposed in his heart, not grudgingly, or under compulsion, for God loves what? So, and 
And by the way, the next verse is the promise of grace. Look at the next verse. And God is able to make all. So how am I going to ensure that my seed sowing is going to secure the love of God because He loves a cheerful giver? And this will generate the promised grace in this chapter. I have to make sure that it's not just, number one, bountiful, because he who sows sparingly reaps sparingly, but he who sows bountifully reaps bountifully. I really want to encourage you. There's some people really exercising your faith by raising your offering. You, uh, the word sparing here is stingy in the Greek, and the message says, he who sows stingy seed reaps a stingy crop. But if you sow bountifully, you will reap a generous crop. Okay? So if you want to up your harvest, up your seed. Simple. Right? I've spoken to that when I did the whole lesson on generosity. It's on the website if you want to give it. What I want to talk about just quickly in the next 10 or 15 minutes is this last point. You've got to sow cheerfully. Everyone say cheerfully. Now you might think, wow, this is a light lesson today, Randall. Keep cheerfully. No problem. Let's, let's get it done. I'll be happy. I'll be smiling when I do so. Offering time will be the most joyful time of the service. <laughs> hmm? when, whenever you take up offerings, most churches worldwide, it's the most saddest part of the service. <laughs> Yet, publicly, it should be the most cheerful. People should be going beside themselves when offerings are taken. Publicly, I'm talking. And you'll see why I'm saying this to you in a moment. Now watch. Um, there are two attitudes here that are highlighted. Number one, generous giving as opposed to stingy giving. And secondly, cheerful giving. And the opposite of cheerful is described in verse 7. The opposite of cheerful is described as giving grudgingly or giving under comp. As giving grudgingly or giving under compulsion. Second Chronicles 25 verse 2 is a very important verse. Second Chronicles 25 verse 2 says this. He is Amaziah the king. He did that which was right, but not with a whole heart. Good King James. He did that which was right in the sight of the Lord, but not with a loyal heart. Old King James. Just King James. He did that which was right in the sight of the Lord, but not with a perfect heart. This verse tells me one thing. It is possible to do the right thing externally, but with the wrong heart posture internally. Doing the right thing with the wrong heart makes the right thing wrong. You've got to make sure the heart is right. Paul is not satisfied and his exhortation to the Corinthians that you give. He says, Guys, watch how you give. It mustn't be sparing. It must be bountiful. Then he says, it must be cheerful. And the opposite of that is giving reluctantly or under obligation. Giving reluctantly or giving under obligation. Now, first thing, giving under compulsion. The King James says it nicely, 2 Corinthians 9, 7. Um, he who gives must not give of. The word is of necessity. Everyone say of necessity. You're giving because you have to, and the NASB says you're giving under compulsion. Now, when you give under compulsion, it's almost like you're giving under coercion, whether that coercion is overt or subtle. Or subtle right? It can be subtle in the sense of not, no one's coercing you to give, but you feel the pressure to give based upon corporate, widespread obedience in the place. Do you know that can be pressuring? When everybody else is doing it, but you are not. And no one is holding a gun to it, but you say, lest I be seen to be the odd one out, I better comply. Do you know that is compulsion? No one externally is compelling you, but it's born out of a sense of guilt or a sense of not seeming to be the odd one out. This is, I believe, was the sin of Ananias and Sapphira in Acts 5. Because the Bible says, everyone sold lands, and they were all bringing money to the feet of the apostles. And Ananias and Sapphira, I think, 
for fear of not being seeming to be uh, not compliant to corporate culture. Corporate culture was strong in the early church. Giving was done daily, not to be seen out. There can be a sense of, of necessity, of we have to do it because it's the right thing to do. But my heart is not in it. I'll do the right thing with an incomplete heart. I'll do the right thing with an imperfect heart. And that's why many people are sowing, not coming to the fullness of harvest. Because doing the right thing, but with no heart involvement. Now let me just say this. If you are going to give like that, you might as well not give at all. I want to make certain in this congregation, you know why I'm so vociferous in this particular series? It's simply because in this series, the reason why we started it is that God promised us that we're going to be very wealthy, the people here. And all of you said, but God will not entrust to you great wealth if you're not going to honor Him with the same. Your giving testifies that your dependence is not on the source that job you have, that opening, that door, that is not the source. God is your source. And even that opportunity might recruit income for you. When you give to God, you say, my eye is not on that God. My eye is on you. But if you feel a compulsion to be compliant, it tells you your heart has not fully got the revelation that God is your provider. Right? You're doing it under coercion. I know there's an over thing. You know, I get so nauseated sometimes when I watch Christian television and they appeal for finances in the way they do. It sickens me to my gills, honestly. I feel a Holy Ghost frustration because I know it's not of God in terms of the way they are doing it. It's satanic. It's almost uh, 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 like divining, like witchcraft. You don't go to the phone, any of you. Please, you don't succumb to that spirit. Right? I want to encourage you. Uh, there are legitimate places where you should give. And you know, I know that some ministries make calls for offerings in a very honorable manner. And that's different. But you know, you'll know that your spirit will tell you something, that something's not right here. Okay? Uh, and you know, they, they say if you give, tw- they read Psalm 25. If you read, give $25. This promise in Psalm 25 is one is going to be yours. What trash? Tell your neighbor stupid. You call a spade a spade. Stu- I can say it's stupid. Right? No one ever reads Psalm 1. Give one dollar and some blessing of Psalm 1 verse 3. That's a powerful blessing there. They read some from Psalm 100 and up. <laughs> give a hundred dollars. Give this. Give that. It's all gimmicks. Now what you are calling the people of God. You, 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 you're forcing God's people to give undercom. Pulsion, no harvest is realized because the heart was not connected to the right attitude in how you have given to the Lord. Then it says grudgingly. Now that's one thing of necessity. The other thing, please, I want to remind you, the previous verse just spoke about sowing and reaping. And Paul then finds the need, hey, get you before you engage that principle, get the attitude right. The second attitude is that you do not give of or from out of a sense of grudge. Do not give grudgingly. The word grudgingly could be translated reluctantly. In fact, the, the Greek is a wonderful word. It's ek lupes. Ek lupes. Two words. Ek lupes. Lupes means pain and sorrow. And ek means out of. Ek lupes means out of pain and sorrow. You're giving, but you are crying inside. It's painful, it's sorrowful, and you're giving reluctantly, not with your whole heart. Okay? God is saying, if the giving causes you sorrow, don't give at all. Because I love what kind of giver? Cheerful. I love the cheerful giver. Please, if you're giving out of necessity or giving out of grudge, you are not representing the greatest giver. Please remember the whole point of this sermon today is everything we do must glorify God. Everything we do must represent glory, must represent the full. So when I give, how I give must fully represent a God who gets extremely happy when he gives. Do you think God gives begrudgingly? I was uh, uh, in the last week, I guess it was after the wedding, Matthew's wedding in Cape Town. 
the day before we left, um, we were busy. The flat was basically set up, everything they need, etc. And so I said to Renee, hey, Matthew doesn't have any tools. Every husband needs tools. You know? <laughs> Basic things to fix up little things. So there's a man now in charge of his own household. I feel I want to go buy him some tools. So I went to build his warehouse and uh, asked Renee. I was like a little boy in a shop. I was, I've got a toolbox with about 600 rand, or empty toolbox, and I'm buying stuff to fill it now. Spanners, uh, all kinds of uh, screwdrivers, hammers. I bought every kind, various size nails, different packages. Screws for wood, screws for concrete, uh, all kinds of things, you know. Uh, I think we spent about 2,500 rand just on, on tools, <laughs> And you know, I could not contain the excitement I found in my heart to do it. And you know what? When, as I was paying for the stuff and walking out, the Lord says, as you feel to give gifts to your son, I feel exactly the same way about you when I'm about to give you something. When I give you, it's not begrudgingly. I want, God is saying to me, I want to do more. And so the Lord said to me, so model what you have now Model all your giving with the same disposition of cheerfulness. God is happy. Do you know what the, in the parable of the prodigal son, remember? The older son was unhappy that the father threw a party for the... Remember he heard music and, and the servant said, hey, they, they slaughtered the fatted calf for this guy who just came back. Now this, this older brother must have been thinking, that fatted calf I grew from a baby. I fed him, I grew him up. They killed that thing for this guy. The father threw a lavish party for the, for the son. And you know when the son challenged the father, the son said to the father, this son of yours, never ever referred him to as my brother, says, he distanced himself from the brother, says, your son, not my brother, you're this son of yours, squandered. The father turned to him and said, my, watch, my son, Everything I have is yours. If you wanted a kid, small little kid, to party with your friends, it would have been yours. What he's saying, in one of the versions, the ESV says, and the older son was slaving outside. When the, when the younger son who came home was being partying inside. What he's saying is, you're really not a son yet. You are just as lost as him. Because you function like a slave in my house. You don't know what's available to you. He says, if you open your eyes, everything I have here is yours. So you, in reference to your brother, must model the same generosity and cheerfulness that I have, is, I'm demonstrating to you right now. You know, and then when, I, when I think about these things, even now as I'm speaking to you, I can hear a good, good father say to all of you, everything I have. Come into your estate. Come into the fullness of your inheritance. There's nothing I will not dispense to you as and when you need it. But as an activator, all I'm requiring of you then, in your world, in your management of finances, you become a distribution center on my behalf also, and you mimic me, you model me, you represent me in how you administer your finances. God is saying, when you do so, I don't want to see grudge. I don't want to see reluctance. I don't want to see pain. I don't want to see sorrow. But I want to see cheerfulness. Tell, them, tell someone be cheerful. Now when people say to me, hey, Randolph, I've got a problem with my cheer. It's not full. <laughs> my joy. I will just simply say, you're not giving enough then. Because giving should well up. Cheer. Giving should well up. Joy. Do you know, let me give you the Greek word. The Greek word for, before I get there, look at this text. I found this text just and I inserted it into my notes. Deuteronomy 15 verse 10 says, we're going to close now, King James. Deuteronomy 15, 10, King James. And by the way, the context here is first root giving. If you look at the context, and God says to Israel, you shall surely give your first fruit, it, yeah, to the priest. Him is the priest, the high priest. 
and your heart shall not be grieved when you give. Say it with me, your heart shall not be grieved. So God saying, when you give, your heart must not be grieved. No pain, no sorrow. Don't give out of pain or out of sorrow. Because of this thing, watch, the Lord your God will bless you in all your works and in all to which you put your, your hand to. It's a wonderful, wonderful verse. So I don't want to hear Ana offering time. Ouch! Eesh! This is hard. No, but I want to hear. Ha, 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 ha. It's cheer. Everyone say cheer. Now, the reason why I'm saying ha, 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 ha is because, listen carefully, the Greek word for cheerful is hilarious, from which we get the English word hilarious. And the Oxford Dictionary defines hilarious like this. High-spirited. Amen. <laughs> Everyone say high-spirited. High say jovial. jovial. Say exhilarated. Exhilarate. Say happy. happy. Right? Such must be the attitude with which you give. So I firmly believe offering time should be the happiest time in the service. Wow, that time, guys. Or when you, if you're not doing it now, when you're doing your offering, your EFT, Wow, what an honor. A sense of joy. Why? Everyone say why. Think like this. All my life is to represent my Father, is to display His glory before men. According to 2 Corinthians 9, offerings glorify God. So how I do this must exactly mirror Him and bring Him honor. The manner in which I do it. I will not just do the right thing with the wrong heart. I will do the right thing with the with the right heart. So I want to encourage the house. Are you going to practice cheer? Come on. Say someone, someone practice cheer. I know sometimes when my biggest come, they come at the most inopportune times, interrupt my program, and they rattle the gates. And the way they rattle the gates irritates me. It's not they rattle the gate. I have to remind myself, Lord, let this giving be with cheer. <laughs> Even though I'm angry right now, compose. I want to bless you and represent the Father to you as I administer this, these rolls or this coffee or the sandwich to you. I want to give to you with a heart of absolute cheer. Now listen. I want you to kind of, as a close, listen to Deuteronomy 15.10. The same verse. It's on the board. But I want to read this from the Message Bible. Listen to this as we close. Watch. Give freely and spontaneously. Don't have a heavy heart or a stingy heart. And so again, give freely or spontaneously. Don't have a stingy heart. The way you handle matters like this triggers God and God's blessings in everything you do. All your works and ventures. Triggers God's heart in everything you do, all your works and ventures. Okay? Listen to 2 Corinthians 9-7 in the Amplified. Watch. That God is able to make all grace abound to you. Watch as we close. Let each of you give as he has made up his own mind and purpose in his own heart. Not reluctantly, not out of sorrow or under compulsion. For God loves and takes pleasure in prizes above other things and is unwilling to abandon to do without a cheerful, joyous, and prompt to do it giver in whose heart is his giving. It's very powerfully captures succinctly all the points that I was trying to communicate to us this morning. Amen. Think representation when you give. Think I'm putting God on display when I do this. Think, I'm just like my father as I do this. And listen carefully. The power of sowing and reaping will be greatly, the harvest that comes to your seed sowing will be far greatly accentuated when your representational quality in your doing it is heightened. If you represent more accurately, you give power to the principle to ensure that the harvest attached to the seed
becomes your portion. Amen. So are you going to represent? Amen. Give with cheer. Give happily. Amen. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for high-spiritedness in our giving. A joy, a happiness. We want to be hilarious beside ourselves because this is the way you respond. God, even as we, we said these things today, I sense your heart that you even said in your word, it's my good pleasure to give you the kingdom. You find pleasure in your gifts to us. So I ask in Jesus' name for us all, every time we enact this principle, God, you would be pleased by our representation as we, at your reputation, put on display in how we do these things. So we ask great grace and peace be our portion today as we receive this word. We ask in Jesus' name that it will well up within us, take ground within us, and cause us to be successful in the matter of giving and receiving. For we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.